And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today's Christ the King Sunday, but of course, Christ was no ordinary king. It, uh, it actually startled me when I saw that this was the gospel that was um, that is apportioned for today because it shows Jesus in all his weakness. And this um, really terrible contrast between the sign above Jesus' head and the man beneath the sign. Um, it said, this is the king of the Jews. A little trivia is... Um, when it says on the sign I-N-R-I, that's Latin for Jesus Nazarenus, Jesus of Nazareth, Rex Judem, King of the Jews. Um, it was written, we know from the other Gospels, in three languages. And who's beneath the sign um, but a bloody, pitiful, half-naked, crucified man? Right? It's, it's a startling contrast. And it's startling for Christ the King Sunday. You'd think we would have some image of revelation of the Lamb on the throne, but what we see is Christ in his weakness. He certainly didn't look like much of a king. And the people that were gathered around his feet, we know from the other gospel accounts, the Marys and, and John, certainly didn't appear like much of a kingdom. In, in fact, it was um, so pitiful that the temple leadership and the soldiers mock him. Right? They're, they scoff, save yourself if you're a king. Right? If you're some great, powerful monarch, save yourself. Outwardly, of course, his kingship was hidden. It was invisible. But what does the good thief on the cross say? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right? Who has a kingdom? A king. And I think we hear those words sort of knowing all that we know about what would happen three days after Good Friday. right? But the thief on the cross didn't see that. He didn't see Jesus risen. He didn't see the miracles of the apostles. He didn't see... Who knows what else? All he saw was the man on the cross, but he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did the good thief know to say this? How did he know to ask it? I think it can only be explained explained by faith. Um, faith which is perceiving what is happening invisibly, right? that sees more than meets the eye. I love that phrase. I use it all the time, I know. In Ephesians, um, the eyes of the heart. Right, to see with the eyes of the heart who was actually there beside him, not just a crucified man, but the king of the universe. And the, the thief actually carries himself as if he had come into like a royal courtroom. Right? You know, that, this is something you could imagine saying if you were a convicted criminal, kind of in the, on the presence of the king on his throne, Lord, remember me. Right? This sort of pitiful plea of the one who, who holds the power, the king. That's great faith to be nailed beside a man that looked like that and say, Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how does the king respond? Um, I actually need to get a Kleenex, which I didn't bring with me because I have a runny nose. <laughs> Thank you. I'll trust you with the Kleenex. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I just want to drip. I will use sanitizer before communion. Um... He asks for pardon, and the king comes back not just with pardon, but with a promise of paradise. I love what this reveals about the character of our Lord. Even in his last moments, in this physical agony, he's forgiving the soldiers. He gets asked for pardon. Can I, can I have some pardon? He's like, you can have paradise. 
right? Just this overly gracious, overly abundant response to the thief's request. Why is he rewarded thus? Again, I think because of his faith. I think the good the good thief had real faith to see what Jesus was. I love that we also have this reading from Colossians tied to today. That the, the one in whom all things hold together, for whom all things were made, through whom all things were made for were through whom all things were made. Right? The, the beginning and the combination of all creation, the firstborn, the preeminent one. Right? Colossians gives us the image that the thief somehow, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, had faith to see. He says, yeah, I, I know who you are. You're not just a fellow convict. You're the Logos of God making retribution. Actually, it's actually receiving retribution um, for the sins of the whole world, ransoming the whole world. I am um, a verse I love, which I think really summarizes um, the good thief's response. By the way, tradition, if any character in the Bible doesn't have a name, tradition kind of comes up with a name for him. Uh, and they're more or less reliable. In this case, I think it's fairly reliable. Um, the name is Dismas, is what's given to the thief on the cross. I think there's a Dismas house for criminals in Birmingham. Is that right? I think so. But anyways, in 2 Corinthians 5.16, there's a verse which I think summarizes what transpired between the good thief and Jesus. It reads this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. That's a picture, right, of what Dismas does, not looking just at what the eyes would see, but with the eyes of the heart, seeing what's really transpiring. Here is the great king. This is the the ransom that he's paying, his own self-offering, to purchase for himself the kingdom. Dismas's faith resulted in his being granted paradise. What a great comfort. Of course, it wasn't the case with the other thief. Um, it really struck me upon thinking about it for this Sunday, the presumption of the bad thief was like, yeah, if you're the Messiah, say, um, save yourself and us, because we're with you. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know what his tactic was. But it's been well said by um, ancient preachers that seeing two crosses besides Jesus is a, a, a wonderful um, point for us, that we see two totally different outcomes, two people being crucified with Christ, um, the one who scoffs, and is not granted paradise, and the one who sees what Jesus really is doing and is granted paradise, right? The, and it's been said that the one, the good thief Dismas is there so that we would never despair of ourselves. It's never too late. Even at the last second of his wicked life, he turned to God. But the other thief that we can't presume on anything, right? He had a very similarly wicked life, but didn't choose Christ in the end. So we sort of see this portrait of sort of the two paths in the road, the split, which we all will go on as we encounter Jesus Christ. Which thief will you be? I love when I see three crosses up somewhere. It's a reminder. Which one will I be? The, like the good thief? Um, never delaying repentance, but turning to the Lord, even if it's the last second? Uh, or the bad thief who scoffed? Um, as well as, that, I think, this vision of our own discipleship, there's one other lesson I think we can see from Dismas, which I want to tease out this morning. And... Um, it's sort of a wider application of the same thing, of not of seeing more than, than meets the eye. So in the same way that the body of Christ, when it was on the cross, um, was not, was very little to the eyes, but a lot to the eyes of the heart, I think I want to offer you it's the same thing with the body of Christ on earth today, the church. 
In the same way, um, the worldwide communion of Christians, which includes ourselves, I think we should be careful not to judge according to the flesh. We should look at what is invisible, because outwardly, there are many things that tell us the global church is not doing well. Right? Um, If it's not facing persecution, somewhere in the Middle East or Far East and Christians being killed, um, on our own turf, or, or actually in other areas of the country, there's governments oppressing the proclamation of the gospel. Um, Europe, which used to be a stronghold of the Christian faith, now scarcely has any Christians in it. The largest communion in the world, the Roman Catholic Church, makes headlines almost weekly for scandal or inconsistency. Every single denomination on the planet um, is struggling against uh, heresies that are working their way in, in the cracks, whether it's the prosperity gospel or universalism or a self-help variety of religion or just the internal theological strife that's occupied so many denominations. The church is also, as I think it looks often in the news, bloody and pitiful. It's not a lot to look at. Outwardly, the body uh, is weak. I didn't say not just in the macro, not just out there, but even in our own lives. Um, One of the things that tempts me to be discouraged is how slow progress seems to be made in the Christian life. Uh, year after year, falling into the same sins, still struggling with it, praying for growth and seeing it come painfully slowly. Right? Outwardly, our Christian lives are often not a lot to look at. I feel like the world could say, save yourself if your religion is so good. And it's like, ah, like I, I, it doesn't look impressive to a scoffer. Our own Christian lives, I think, can sometimes um, feel how pitiful, like the body of Christ on the cross. But in the face of that, of all the wounds uh, in the the church at large, in our own Christian lives, um, remember Dismas, remember 2 Corinthians 5.16, not regarding the church according to the flesh, not regarding the church according to the flesh, but looking to what is unseen. In the midst of manifold difficulties and failures and wounds, nevertheless, in the very midst of that, the Lord God is saving his own family. Right? He's actually sanctifying little by little saints of God who will eventually resemble the glory of his own son. Right? He's little by little comforting the afflicted, bringing peace to the anxious, healing the sick. One of the things I always wonder after we pray for someone who's been sick for a while and they get better, we never know how otherwise it could have been if it wasn't for God's intervention, but like he commands us to do, he doesn't parade his good works. Right? God is working so often invisibly in millions of lives, even in churches in their most broken circumstances, how God is still using the church. There's always more going on than meets the eye. God is working his purpose out even in the midst of, of great weakness. Um, how he does that? complete mystery. It's one of those things that falls under that prophecy of Isaiah, his ways are higher than our ways, right? If I wanted to have a church that sort of really moved the gospel in the world and changed lives, I'd be trying to crank out the results way more than we see, but that's not God's way. He works slowly and in the midst of weakness and brokenness. One of the things that has sort of dawned on me when I look back on years of struggling sometimes with single temptations is that part of, I think, why the Lord even permits this is that 
ultimately for humbling, that we would never think like, yes, I'm just this strong kind of Christian that can conquer this on my own, right? but that we'd all be have the same sense of filial dependence on the Father. Lord, I, I can't say anything unless you tell me to say it. I can't conquer this unless you empower me to do it. And that's part of the mystery of how he uses and works things out of weakness. So I just want to encourage you, as we so often see the church in the headlines, as you look in your own life, our church, whatever it may be, um, don't stop at the visible. Think like Dismas, not just in how we behold Christ, who I know each of you profess as king, rightly, but even on his body on earth, to not stop at the visible, but to look at what is unseen. Jesus, remember us. Jesus, remember me when he comes into his kingdom. Amen.